Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parl. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we talk to writer, growth marketer, and independent creative Steph Smith. Steph knows how to create content really well. Her blog, StephSmith.io, which is about remote work, growth, and technology, is read by over 400,000 readers. And she self-published her book, Doing Content Right on Gumroad, which sold over $40,000 worth in its first week. You might also know her from her work leading the Hustles Trends newsletter. Steph is as much a deep thinker as she is a practical doer. And in this conversation with us, she gives us an insider look at the mindset required to launch creative side projects quickly. We also go into the details of how she evolved her blog content into a book, how she experimented with tiered pricing, basically the book increases in price the more it's sold, and why she built her book to feel more like a course to ensure that readers really engaged and learned from the content. Steph was energetic and she inspired us to think outside the box on how we create and share content. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Steph Smith. And one of the the first questions we'd like to ask our guests is, if we could be holding this interview anywhere in the world, where would you love us to be? Oh, man, that's such a good question. I mean, I used to be nomadic for a while, and there's so many places, so many incredible places in the world. I, have you guys ever been to the Azores in Portugal or the the islands owned by Portugal? They are amazing. And um, I went there a couple of years ago, and one of the most untouched places that um, I've been to in kind of, you know, the Western world. So I think that'd be a cool place to have it. Yeah, I'm down for that. Let's do it, Matt. We're there. We're there with you, Steph. Uh, So, Steph, you've done so many things. Um, In addition to writing, uh, you're you're like an indie maker and there's a a whole world of of you and I'm super interested in that world. Uh, And one of the side projects that you've launched is called Unoya, world and it's a database of over 500 untranslatable words so first question is how did that project come about and second is there one word that is one of your favorites uh, untranslatable words that you've come across um so yeah Unoya was a project a lot of my indie making projects just come from things that i'm super curious about so i'm lucky enough to have a job that provides my financial stability so all of my projects are just like things that i notice in the world or things that i think the world needs for some reason it doesn't have to be a big need just something that i'm like oh this would be really fun to make and i think people would enjoy this and so that was really what Unoya was as i mentioned i was a nomad for several years i was traveling to so many places and we all know this, but the culture is different in, in you know, every country you go to. And some of them are really significant. One of the places that really stood out to me was Japan. Just the culture there was so different, so distinct. Um, and also, as I had traveled around the world, I had started to hear some of these words that maybe people would be familiar with, things like ikigai or kaizen, which were Japanese words. And I was like, wow, it's so interesting that this culture has specific words to articulate certain things that they experience and maybe that we all experience, but that don't directly translate or exist in other languages. And I started to learn more about just more of these words. And I, I looked up and I couldn't really find a directory of them. And I just thought it was fascinating that, you know, different cultures, the, the thing that I find interesting about untranslatable words is it's really like, when you think about words and their purpose in life or why we have them, it's to articulate things that we experience, right? And the reason that certain cultures have untranslatable words is because they experience something to the extent that it becomes necessary to create a word for it, right? It, it happens enough. And I found that so fascinating. So if you look at the untranslatable words from any particular country, it almost gives you like, it's like a looking glass into something that that culture may not uniquely experience, but maybe experiences more than another place. So I just thought, why not create a directory of these um, so that other people might find it interesting? And you asked some of my favorites. I mean, it's hard to pick a specific favorite, um, 
some of the ones that I like, um, there's these two Japanese words that I find are almost like the opposites of one another. One of them is, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but one of them is tachiyomi, which is to stand in a bookstore and read a book without buying it. And then the opposite is sundoku, which is acquiring reading materials or books, but letting them pile up in one's home without reading them. And I think that's just so funny because it like, it's the epitome of human you know, behavior where we just do these irrational things. And there's, we do them enough that there's literally two Japanese words that almost mean the opposite of one another. I love that. I love the idea of a whole universe, a whole experience in one word. That's yeah. great. I think, I think a lot of members of our community will love to check that out. And we'll share that with everyone afterwards. Um, and I'm curious about what you said about um, how a lot of what you've started have just been your curiosities, things that you were interested in. And I'm, I'm curious about whether blogging started like that for you. When was the first time you started blogging and what was your ambition on that first day? Yeah, I love that question because to your point, I think a lot of the time, whether it's with writing or otherwise, people will kind of try to like find their calling or try to find something that they know will be successful. And often what I've found is the things that I've been most successful with are things that I'm just naturally passionate about or that I just stumbled upon, right? And started exploring and exploring. And all of a sudden it was like, I wrote a book about it. And I'm like, how did this happen, right? I never expected that. And so I think that you're absolutely right that um, most of the things that I tend to pursue are just things that I find interesting, things that I'm almost more pulled to rather than pushed towards. And the same thing was true with blogging where I actually, in my first kind of job in the tech world, I was working as a growth marketer. And then I happened to be working with this publications team at the same company. And eventually somehow, again, I just like found myself leading the team unexpectedly. That's where I started to learn more about writing. And one of the things that stood out to me about writing was it seemed, so by the way, I hated writing in, in, high school. <laughs> English was my by far my least favorite class. So I always viewed it as this like really tedious thing that I could never master. And then when I started leading this publications team and I started critiquing other people's writing, which again, I was surprised to find myself in that role. I was like, oh my gosh, writing is just a tool to communicate certain ideas. And that was uncovered by realizing as I was editing people's work, I was like, I think I know what you're trying to say, but like, this can be much simpler or just tell me what you're trying to say, right? Like, I know you're trying to make a point and let me help you get to that point. And I was like, oh my gosh, why? it sounds obvious maybe to some people on this call, but I was like, writing is just a tool to articulate your ideas the same way podcasting is. It's all content is a way to translate an idea from one person to another person or many people. And so at that point, I started to become more familiar myself with writing and how other people were doing it and maybe um, became more familiar with it in the sense that I wanted to pursue it. Not necessarily again, pursue it as a job in any sense, but I started to experience things and say, huh, there's certain things about remote work or learning to code or things that I was passionate about that I wanted to say to other people. That was it. I just wanted to say something. I had certain points of views that I wanted to articulate to the world. And that's when I really started to write and launch my blog. I love that. I, I, I think that approach is, like you said, simple, but actually it's, I think we all need to be reminded of that. I'm, I'm curious whether you had anyone in mind when you were writing, when first writing your blog, did you have a specific friend or colleague that's interesting not so much to be honest and it's not because I absolutely look up to tons of people and learn from them but at the time it wasn't this thing where had I actually made it a big endeavor where you know I'm going to go create a blog and I'm going to become a writer I think then I would have had to look for mentors and I would have had to make it perfect before launching and things like that but at the time all I thought was I really have this point of view about like how people are interpreting remote work or really just have something I want to say. And at that time there was no pressure. In fact, no one was listening, right? Like when I launched my first article, I had no following, like no one was listening. And so that was almost easier because it wasn't this big endeavor. It was just, I want to say these things. And that's where I started versus I think a lot of people go into it. Like even companies will do this. They're like, we need to start a blog. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. You can start a blog, but like, what are you trying to say? Cause starting a blog is just a way to, again, communicate certain ideas. And so you should never start with the medium. You should start with like what you're actually trying to achieve with the medium. And I think that's why early on, maybe I didn't have people I was per se looking up to because all I was trying to do was just articulate my ideas to the world. That's beautiful. It's really interesting listening to you talk about that. I like, I like the unpicking of it because actually it's making me think even just what I write about um, as an editor, just ways to approach it, thinking about my message rather than what I'm trying to, rather than the reader. Um, so I'm curious about one thing that you do on your blog, which is that you openly share um, different things that you're doing. So you 
you set goals on your website, you set your, you track your progress, uh, including sort of books read, number of days exercised. What drives you to track that and more importantly, openly share this? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a, there's an obvious aspect, which is accountability, right? As soon as you share a goal, you're more accountable to it. People know that you've set this goal, so you care more about it. But I would actually say early on that impacted me, but now that I have shared them for so long, that accountability kind of dies down candidly, and that's not what drives me to continue sharing. But I do think, one, there's a lack of authenticity in the world. I think that a lot of people just, you know, are, are trying to achieve certain things for, you know, the purpose of impressing someone or just saying that they can achieve things. But what we don't really focus on is the path along the way. And that's how you get to people who, you know, become billionaires and <laughs> realize like, why did I never wanted to become a billionaire? Like, how did I get here? And so I think there's, there should be more of a focus on how things are built along the way, right? Like the, the emotion, the good and the bad, and, and just that path along to whatever goal you're trying to achieve. And something that I found really powerful is just sharing that, right? Like sharing everything that I'm doing, good, bad, what projects I'm working on, why I'm working on them, the like thought behind them. And then of course, there's a benefit of building in the open. I'm sure a lot of creators, you guys have heard talk about this, but building in the open allows people to be part of that journey, right? So not just hear you when you're launching a product and showing it to them, they know, and they can be part of that journey on the way there. And the analogy that I always give is, you know, if your car breaks down on the side of the road, someone is more likely to help you push it if you're already pushing it. Right. So people can see the effort that you're putting in. They can understand where you're coming from. They view you as a person and not just like this, the output of whatever you happen to create. So there's all sorts of benefits to it. Of course, people also will, you know, probably bring up that there's negative aspects to it. Right. A lot of people are worried that people will copy them. But I'm sure many of you have also heard of this kind of idea from Derek Sivers, which is like ideas versus execution. And as soon as I had heard that years ago, where if you haven't heard of it, it's this idea that ideas are basically worthless and execution is the multiplier. That's what really determines your success. I was like, if I really believe that, like truly in my heart, believe that execution is worth everything, I can share all my ideas and not be concerned about people stealing them because I am confident in my ability to execute on those ideas. And so that was also a push for me to be like, why not? Like, why not share this stuff publicly? There obviously is potential downside, but once I got my head around that concept, the downside almost evaporated in my head. I like that. I like, it makes me think of the idea of freedom. The minute you're not worried about sharing, you're free. Hmm. Exactly. I love that. And this is, I mean, I love what you said about the, the car pushing metaphor too. Brad likes it too. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not until people know what your goals are, what you're trying to achieve, that they can actually step in and help you. Um, and, and I love that. I, I'm curious, is there anything that came from sharing those goals either in the last, this year, last few years that kind of changed something for you just because you were more public about what you were trying to achieve? Is any story that comes to mind? It's a good question. I mean, there's, so as you said, as soon as you open up your goals, people, you'll be surprised at how many people step in to be like, oh, you're trying to achieve this. Like, here's what I did, or here's someone I can connect you with, or mm. they, they really do step in to try to help you push your car. Um, but I think another underrated aspect of sharing your goals openly is that there is a sense of accountability, not so much of hitting your goals, but taking the time to actually establish if those are the goals you want to hit or, or you want to work towards, because if you're going to share them openly, then like people are going to know like what you care about and mm. how, and, and there will often be a disconnect between the goals that you make and then what you actually action. But hopefully in you sharing them publicly, that gap kind of lessens a bit because you are held accountable in that sense of saying, you know, I care about this and I'm working on this versus I think that if you hold your um, goals a little too close to your chest, you can kind of deceive yourself sometimes and say like, these are my goals and, and I care about these things, but then your actions say otherwise, right? Mm. And so I think there is also an underrated aspect of that and publicly like people keeping you accountable without someone actually keeping you accountable, but, but you taking the step to share it, I think helps you mm. on the way there. Yeah, I love that. And I'm curious because there was a period where I was a lot more open sharing my goals and I realized that sometimes it became like the stick I beat myself with when I didn't achieve it. Because not only I didn't achieve it, I then said I was going to do it and then I didn't do it. And I'm curious, how, how have you come to terms with that? I mean, I'm assuming there's some goals that maybe you've fallen short with. How do you, how do you think about that? Absolutely. Everyone misses their goals. I miss my goals all the time. And if you actually look at my goals from last year, I think I miss most of them. I think there is 
an argument to coming back and, and reassessing, like, why did I set those goals? And do I consistently miss the same type of goal? That's when I think you need to like go back and question, like, why am I setting goals of this nature in the first place? But there is an element of you should be failing some percentage of the time. If you're setting goals and you're hitting every single one of them, then you're not setting ambitious goals enough. Right. And there is it like if you imagine your life on a trajectory and it is in theory going up into the right at some point, just imagine a scatter plot. Like if you're going like this, at points, you're going to be underneath the line that you anticipated. But if you're always below the line, that line's not really, that's not going to be moving up into the right. So if you are missing some portion of your goals, I think that's natural. If you're missing all of them, then I think you need to reassess, like maybe you're not setting the right goals that are things that you care about. But if you're meeting all your goals, if you set a goal and you 100% know you're going to hit it, that's not a goal. That's like, that's something that you've already achieved. Yeah. That's, that's like an automatic thing in your life. Right. So I think there is an element to setting goals that you will fail at some part of the time and that's fine. That's great. I love that. So we, we titled this event beyond blogging because while you are a, a blogger and blogging and writing is what you do, you also do so much more. We talked about, you know, some of your side projects, but you've also created your site is like a living portfolio of you. And, you know, Parl mentioned that the tracking is one part of that, but I know this is a question that comes up a lot is especially creative people. There's so many things we're interested in. And then when we try to distill that into a single story, it's like, well, this there surely will not make sense to anyone. And you've done it really well on your site. And I'm just curious, you know, how, is that something that you worry about? Like distilling all these various interests into a single story? Do you struggle with that? Just curious how you think about that or how you've approached it. So I definitely struggled with it for a while. I think I struggle with it less. If you've ever heard of Paul Graham saying, keep your identity small, it's for this very reason. I mean, I think he actually articulates it for a different purpose, but it's this idea that as we grow up, even think about when you're a kid, you're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's something like an astronaut or a doctor. And basically whatever your career is becomes your identity, right? And that's really restricting. You even see it when you're growing up. I remember when I was in junior high and I would have a certain style and I would see something that someone else was wearing that I liked. And I, you know, I genuinely wanted to wear it, but I said, oh, I don't dress like that, right? Or that's not, I can't pull that off. And I've, you know, everyone experiences this in different domains in their life. But this idea of keeping your identity small is important because as soon as you tie yourself to something, even though that can be empowering. So some people use identity for the good where they say, I'm not a smoker, right? And that helps them. But identity can also work in the reverse way where as soon as you tie yourself to something, you tend to relate that to other things and you say, I'm a writer and therefore I can't learn to code, right? Or I'm X and therefore this thing isn't for me. And as soon as you wrap your identity in something, it really restricts you in being able to pursue other things, even if that's the best thing for you, right? Even if you would love that, you just struggle to see the opportunities. And so I think, you know, someone here said like their dad was a polymath. I think that's amazing, right? Where you can just follow, as I said, follow your curiosities, follow the things that you want to learn. And I think part of your identity getting wrapped into things is that you want to be something, right? It is hard work. For example, I used to lead a publication team and people would say, oh, like, what's your title? I had a title. I could say I am X, right? And same thing as before. It's, I'm a growth marketer. I'm a consultant. And I could say that. And it's not as appealing when people ask you what you are to be like, oh, I kind of, I kind of write online and I, you know, I taught myself the code and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, it almost sounds like you're making excuses for not having an identity. And that can feel pretty shitty sometimes, right? Where you, you want to say I am X and you're almost trying to justify that, not just to other people, but to yourself. And I think it's really empowering when you can say like, I'm okay with that. I'm actually just proud of like my life's work. I'm proud of how I spend my time. I'm proud that I'm something today and probably will be something else tomorrow. So I think that is something important that is really, I don't know like biologically where this comes from, but it's really common. I've experienced it to want to tie yourself to something, but it's really, really limiting. And so that's why, yes, my body of work is all over the place. And even I'll do some interviews like this and people will be like, how do you want me to describe you? And I'm like, honestly, I don't know because I struggle to say like what I am. Um, and so I think just one final thing on that is the point of your identity limiting you is people often today regard me as like a writer, for example, or like an author. And I resisted that for so long because I never saw myself as a writer. In fact, like I in general see myself as a more like technical data-driven person because that's where, like I did a degree in chemical engineering and I always was like, 
I don't want to be a writer. There's nothing wrong with writing, of course. But I was like, I don't see myself as that. Like, why are people calling me this? And in fact, I, I even resisted it in, in ways where I would avoid doing projects around it. People would say, hey, can you, can you consult with me on this project? And I would say, no, I'm not, I'm not a content marketer. I'm not a writer, even though I could have done the project. And then eventually I just leaned into it. And I was like, you know what? I do know a lot about writing and content marketing. And that's when I wrote the book. But I think it's important to recognize, like, what are the things that we say, like, I'm not this, or I can't be that. Um, sometimes it's fine if you believe that there's certain things that we're just naturally more inclined to do, but just pay attention to when you're, maybe when that's restricting things in your life. And again, that's why my body of work, once I kind of got past that, I've just been like, you know what, I'm just going to create whatever the hell I want. And even if it doesn't fit squarely with what I've created before, I'm okay with that. That's great. Mm-hmm. I love that. And we are going to dig into your work in a moment, but I'm curious, a little anecdote. So right w- around the time we booked an interview with you, I walked into my partner's office and she was looking at a blog because she was trying to do something technical and it was your blog that was popped up, totally unrelated. I'm like, wait, we're interviewing this. How did you find this? And it's like, oh, I just Googled it and it came up. I'm like, so cool. So yeah, you've managed in a sea of millions of blogs you know, you've managed to come on top. I'm sure there's technical things there like SEO, but I'm curious if you had, is there anything behavior-wise approach, insight, and maybe we'll dig into this more in a, in a minute, but if you had to distill it into like what separates you from other people, I mean, you've done it in a pretty short amount of time. Is there any behavior mindset uh, insight that you think separates you? Sure. I think I can get into everything that you publish online should have some sort of differentiator, right? And this sounds obvious, but it's so, so important with content because a lot of people realize, you know, when they buy a phone or when they buy a physical product that it needs to be differentiated in some way, like it's either cheaper or, you know, higher quality or something different than the other options out there. Often when people create content, they're like, I'm just going to create, again, I'm going to create a blog, like I mentioned earlier, I'm just going to start a newsletter. And sometimes they'll get a little more specific and they'll say, I'm going to start a newsletter about tech. And you're like, okay, cool. I know so many newsletters about tech. That doesn't mean you can't be successful. But if you're just going to go at it and say, I'm going to build a newsletter about tech, then I have no idea if you're going to be successful or not successful because there's no clear, there's no clarity around how you're doing that differently. And so if anyone's looking to create anything you know, any written content online, it's like, are you funnier? Are you more visual? Are you more relatable? Are you more contrarian, more political? Like all of those are differentiators. There's different slants to how you're actually approaching what you're doing. And you need to figure that out, right? You need to have a differentiator because we all know just how much content is online. And so if you don't figure out what your clear way of doing things, so it's not what you're doing, but how you're actually doing it, that's important. So for me early on, I didn't even mean to do this, but because I had no agenda, because I wasn't trying to make money off of my blog, I had no one listening, at least my early work, I think what my differentiator was, was just how honest it was, like how direct I would talk about remote work and say like, all these people are saying X and it's not really like that. Or, you know, I would, I was taking something that again, a lot of people were talking about and my slant, instead of it being necessarily more deeply researched or funnier, or again, all of these ways that you can differentiate, mine was just more direct and honest. Um, and, and I think on top of that, one of the things I benefited from is Again, I think sometimes people when searching for what they want to write about or create, they start, they try to think from like the perspective of what do other people like? What is popular today? And that's fine. You can sometimes find a match there. But what I think is most effective if you're looking to create content is just to start with what do I know a lot about? Like, what am I truly an expert in? And that's also where I happen to start. Because again, I was just sharing things that I was like, I think I see this in a different way than perhaps most of the world. And at that time, it sounds silly, but Now we all work remotely. We're all taking these Zoom calls, but I had worked remotely for years before everyone else, right? And so that actually was something that, quote unquote, I was an expert in. I wasn't an expert, but comparatively, right? I knew more about the subject. So I think, again, these sound like really simple things, like just being knowing a little bit more about a topic that you're writing about sounds obvious, but then I see people all the time write about topics that they know very little about. So I think that those two, again, being more direct and honest, and then also just choosing topics that I truly was an expert and passionate about were the things that I think helped me take off at least at the beginning. Hmm. That's great. Thanks. Like you say, it may, may be obvious, but actually it can be quite hard to execute in the moment when we're writing something. And I'd love to actually take some of this thought and, and, take it towards the direction of your book. You mentioned that you didn't see yourself as a writer, but yet you've written something. Um, so you've published, you've written and published a book called Doing Content Right. Um, 
I really feel like you've managed to publish this on your own terms. Uh, you control the distribution, you've experimented with pricing, which is really fascinating, uh, with, with some you know, great success, financial success, but also just getting a large readership. And we're going to get into the content shortly, but I would love to, uh, to understand your approach and your methodology. So maybe to start us off, I'd love to know what, what, what prompted you to write this? What, what did you have in mind? What were you trying to achieve? Yeah, so similar to when I first started writing the blog, it was the same pull for me where I had been in the content space by that point when I wrote the book for a couple of years. I had led a large publications team. I'd worked for The Hustle, one of the biggest newsletters in the world. I'd grown my own thing. And by that point, I had seen so many resources online that were at best mediocre in the sense that they meant well, but like the advice just wasn't that good or maybe it was super vague or something like that. And then at worst, actually misleading or perhaps just a, a really crappy product that was you know, selling for more than it should have. And so I saw this spectrum. Of course, there's outliers that were actually good. But overall, I was just like, wow, the, the quote unquote advice for people trying to build content businesses or their own publications online was really not great. And I was like, I kind of think I can create something better. And the idea wasn't even like, let me create something better so I can go and make a bunch of money off of this. In fact, I had this outline from, so I launched my blog in like end of 2018, early of 2019. By mid 2019, my blog had taken off. It had been, you know, trended on Hacker News several times, hundreds of thousands of page views. And I had written this outline of what I wanted to say back then. And I'd resurfaced it and I was like, wow, I still, I not only want to publish this, but I have so much more to say when I rediscovered it in 2020. And I just tweeted about it. I was like, I found this outline. If I actually go and <laughs> create this, because I knew it would take a decent amount of work, would people pay 10 bucks for it? And a lot of people were like, hell yeah, like I'd pay more for it. So I was like, okay, I have enough behind this where I, not, not only do I think that this is something that maybe the world could benefit from, but other people do too, and they want it. So that that's what it started off as. And even then I was like, okay, there's probably going to be like a very long form article or something like that, like maybe 10,000 words. It ended up being 70,000 words because as I started going into it, I was just like, I have so much to say, but that's really how it started. Wow. I love it. So, and it's so much more than a book too. Uh, so 70,000 words and whatever you've called it down to, but it's, you've got videos, you've got community recorded lessons. It's, I mean, it feels more like a course. Um, and I'm curious, you, you know, I think you do say on the site, like, think of it like a course. Yeah. Did you, as it evolved, did you think actually, maybe I should just build this as a course or continue to describe it as a book? Does it even matter? What's your take on that? So it definitely matters if you're if your goal is to make the most money as possible, which I'm not against at all. I think that's, <laughs> that's a very normal thing to pursue. I think for me, since it started off as just this outline that ended up being a book that ended up being much bigger than it ended up, than at least I had projected. For me at the beginning, I had called it a book. I was like, just gonna launch it as an ebook. And then over time it had evolved. And the reason it evolved wasn't so much in the sense that I needed to turn it into a course, but I was like trying to maximize instead of the amount of money I made from this book, but maximize the likelihood that people actually engaged with it. Like if you imagine just knowledge inside this book or insight inside this book, like I wanted to maximize the percentage of that that was kind of transitioned to other people. And for me at that time, I realized I've bought a bunch of books before, especially eBooks and haven't read them, even physical books, like I'll buy them and not read them. And so I was like, how do I maximize again, this transfer of knowledge? And to me, I was like, okay, I need to find all the possible ways that people can engage with this. So I held these live sessions. I also created these videos. I created a community because I was like, I know that everyone it's, it's super normal will buy things and not engage with it. So that was the goal at the time. And then yes, like you said, it, it kind of evolved into something more like a course. And I did realize over time, it's funny because one of the takeaways in the book is this idea of perceived value, right? So if you imagine 10 years ago, do you remember when we would, there'd be iPhone apps that gave you a ton of value for 99 cents and people were like, nope, like, I'm not paying for that. And so there's different perceived values on different types of products that we're just used to paying. And people in general are used to paying somewhere between like 10 to $20 for a book. So as soon as like now the book actually costs $100, right? Like the whole package, I guess. And I did realize over time, I was like, as soon as I was getting outside of that $30 mark, people just automatically, even if it's the same product, will start viewing it negatively. So I did start to think, maybe this should be a course. And so I started to massage the language a little bit there because again, it was, it's funny because it was a, a kind of takeaway in the book itself. 
but it is important if you are trying to maximize, I guess, the, the amount of sales that you're doing, whatever you're labeling your product as will have a very significant impact on people's, you know, willingness to buy it. Again, to give the iPhone example, if you were to spend 99 cents on basically anything else in your life, you wouldn't even think about it. But just because people weren't used to buying that type of thing, um, they, you know, they saw it as crazy. Hmm. Love it. It's so we're curious about pricing too. So it's a hundred dollars now, but I think when I looked at it one t- one time, it was inc- incremental pricing. So you had if X amount of, amount of people buy it, then it goes up to this price. Um, I'm not sure if you're still experimenting with that, but I'm curious. It's such an innovative approach to pricing. I'm curious where that idea came from, and did you learn anything from it? Yeah, I learned so much. So I think it really just came from the day that I had tweeted about it. I, like I said, I tweeted about it. I said, would people buy this? A bunch of people were like, yes. But some of the people were like, you should charge more. And I always hear people and I even tell people sometimes you should charge more. But then I found myself in this spot where I was like, okay, so maybe I should charge more, but like how much more? Should I charge $15, $30? You know, should I keep it at 10? And I had no way of determining. And I was just like that day, once I saw that people were interested within two hours, I had spun up like a the title, which I now find a hilariously bad title doing content, right? But I just stuck with it because I spun it up in two hours and then I got the, pulled something together in Photoshop, like spun up a Gumroad page and like got it out there. But as I was doing that, I was like, I just want to get this thing out there and I don't have the time or even the knowledge to know, like I'm not a pricing expert to know what people should pay for this, especially because it was before the product even existed. So I said, you know what, I'm, I've worked in growth and product for a while. I'm like, I'm going to learn from what I've done in that realm and just let the market decide. And the best way I thought of to let the market decide is to have a tiered pricing strategy, which just meant like the first X number of people got it at 10 bucks. And if there was enough demand for that, where people would pay 15 bucks, well, it would go to $15. And then if enough demand, you know, uh, if enough demand was there for people to buy at 20, well, then it would go to 20. And so I just had it and it was very transparent on the page itself. It said X number of sales were at this price. And as soon as those were out, you know, it, it would move its way up. And it's funny because since then I've had several people message me and be like, can I use that strategy? And I'm like, absolutely. Like it is not my strategy. In fact, I'm sure there's many products that have done this before, but I think we get so, um, you know, when we're creating things, we mimic what we see out there. Right. So, in the world, if you think about the pricing strategies that exist, we tend to see only two, right? So we only see where you buy something once and it's at a fixed price, sometimes discounted, but it's at a fixed price and a subscription model. And there are so many different types of pricing models that can exist. You know, I've talked to friends. I'm like, why doesn't a SaaS company use a loyalty-based pricing? Imagine Netflix that costed the first month $20 a month, and then every month it reduced by a dollar until it was 10 bucks a month. Whoever's at 10 bucks a month is, less like, is going to be less likely to churn. Right. And so we can just be way more creative with these things. And again, I think we just tend to mimic what we already see out there instead of thinking for ourselves as to like, why not play around with it? And of course, the final thing I'll say on that is it's not permanent. Right. So I, I launched that pricing strategy, saw that it worked and kept with it. But I easily could have been like, wow, this really isn't working and no one's buying above this price and just, you know, reduced it. And the great thing about that strategy was that you could get data too, right? So I could see at X price, how many people are visiting the page and how, how they're converting. So I think that was just a wonderful way to get more information about how people perceive the product too. There's, there's so much to unpack in that. Thank you so much for those ideas. Um, it's fascinating. Um, and and uh, it is interesting that you've raised the price and experimented with it and you've continued to get readers coming through. Clearly there's a perceived value. Um, I'm curious whether how you sold it. I'm curious to know, how did you drive readers to your page? Was there a particular platform, like social media platform? Was it your newsletter? What do you think helped you drive that traffic? Yeah, so basically all of the kind of promotion around it has just been through me talking about it on Twitter. And then also, as I mentioned, part of building the product was really designed such that people would use it, which sounds you know, again, really obvious, but that was important because as soon as people used it, as soon as they got value from it, they were much more likely to be a promoter of it. So basically since launching, of course, I, you know, launched it on Twitter and have done some things around it since it basically has the the sales since then have just been mostly word of mouth or people who engage in, in the affiliate program around it, which has been amazing, right? Because I actually had as a growth marketer, this strategy, I'd like put together a list of things that I may do one day, things like Facebook ads, but I've never ended up 
actually, you know, doing those things because I've been surprised by how much it's kind of taken a life of its own, which I didn't expect. So yeah, for me, it was Twitter, but I always say to people, cause people are like, well, how much did your audience have to do with the success of the book? And it absolutely impacted it, right? I always say that if I had launched this book five years ago when absolutely no one knew who I was, even if it's the exact same product, the exact same content, no one would have bought it, right? So it is, audience is important. Now I will say my audience today, maybe have, I'm mentioning this cause I use Twitter as my acquisition channel, you could say, I have today over 20,000 followers, but when I launched it, I think I had maybe seven. So there is a reciprocal behavior where, of course, my audience helped develop the product, but then the product itself also helped develop a new audience of people who heard about me through the book. So it wasn't just, you know, the audience following, funneling in that direction, but it also happened in the reverse. But I would say in general, if you're going to take anything away from this idea, is this idea that, again, obvious, but audience matters. And if you are creating content, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make early on is they gate all their stuff immediately. And so again, if I had launched this book years ago and gated it, because it is gated, it's, it's a paid product, no one would have cared. But instead, I created a bunch of free stuff for people over time and engaged with them. People came to know me. It's basically, if you're in marketing, building a funnel, right? So of course, there's, there's a time and a place to gate your content. But if it's the first thing you do, that's generally, in my opinion, a mistake and, and something that I see some creators do too early. Yeah, that makes sense. I like the idea. I, li- I like it. It's funny when we were planning this interview, we were talking about trying to put the word heart and soul in it because I just from your from your writing, I suspected that it wouldn't be just a hard nosed conversation about how to make the most cash in a short amount of time. And it's really wonderful to just hear the way you're approaching it because it feels like you're just offering so much value. Like in the end, if your if your book is selling on word of mouth, it says so much about the, the quality of the content. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about Gumroad because that's the platform that you've used to distribute it, a place where you can buy it. Um, and I wonder, and you've sold, I think, is it, last time I checked, it was 2,900 copies on there. Um, yep. Did you re- did you research other other platforms? I'm guessing you did. And why did you settle on on Gumroad? And what why, what was the what would this platform do that others might not have let you done? Yeah. So one of the takeaways in the book is like the second chapter is all about tools and, you know, how to actually build your publication. But really the main takeaway of that chapter, you could just read like the first paragraph is that often tooling doesn't matter. And the reason I say that is it matters to an extent, but it really is a means to an end in the sense that I could have used any tool that allowed me to publish and charge people online. And whoever is using that product, or or I should say the, the customer doesn't Maybe they know I use Gumroad, but they don't care that I use Gumroad. The same way that when you visit a website or use an app on your phone, you don't know if they're using Flutter or React Native, right? <laughs> because it doesn't matter to you. Mm-hmm. Of course, it may matter on the back end and actually simplifying your processes or your ability to create things. But what's important is that the customer does not care what tools you're using. And so the reason I use Gumroad is just purely for, again, for from my perspective as the creator is simplicity. It makes it incredibly, I'm not affiliated with Gumroad other than the fact that I use it. But just it made it so incredibly easy to pre-sell, which was important to me, um, and just create a product, get it up there. I, like I said, I literally tweeted about it, got some feedback that people would be interested. And within you know an hour or two, I had a product that people could start buying. Now, of course, like, there's many other products that I could use. I haven't experienced using some of the others, so maybe they're just as easy. But Gumroad did everything I needed, right? It was just super simple and allowed me to get to where I wanted, which was to start creating and, and selling things. Hmm. Great. I, I can see that you're favoring action over <laughs> sitting and deliberate, de- deliberating over it. Um, at any point in this process, did you consider traditional publishing? No, <laughs> no. I, you know, I have a goal at some point in my life to create a more traditional novel or not so much novel. It'll be nonfiction, but more of a classic book. And in that case, maybe I would partner with a publisher. But even so today, I would just say that if you have an audience, you don't need the publisher, right? That's like the whole idea where the publisher, what they give you is a couple other things, but it's the access to an audience. And if you already have one, you no longer need to make that trade-off. And it's incredible. I mean, I've now made way more on this book than I could have ever expected. And I've talked to other authors who, you know, did go the traditional publishing route and they've sold way, way, way more copies than me. You know, I've sold around 3000 and they've probably made around the same, if not less, 
in terms of the actual net take-home because publishers take such a big chunk of that. So it's really just a trade-off. And if you don't have the audience and you can get access to a publisher, then maybe that trade-off makes sense. But for me, it never made sense. And again, maybe sometime in the future, if it was a more traditional book that didn't align with my current audience as much, but for this one, I, I never thought about it. Great. And I guess you have so much flexibility now with what you do with it. You can change it overnight if you wanted to without having to go through uh, a team of other people. Exactly. I think that's, you know, I never actually put those two together, but this is something I say all the time about creating my own product. So I learned to code so I could create my own, like, you know, fun little products on my own. And the reason I had done that years ago and chosen to learn to code instead of maybe hiring someone to do so was partially the money, but also partially, um, if you guys are familiar with Peter Lovells, he's a friend of mine and I had learned from him because I would ask him things and I'd be like, wait, so you just, you just do all the like fixes yourself. And at first I thought that was like, I don't want to do that. Like, you don't want to get someone to do that for you. But he's like, no, I just, I don't have to like submit a dev ticket and then wait for someone to get back to me and email back and forth. He's like, I just wake up, like have my cup of coffee in the morning and then, you know, make a couple of code changes. And I was like, that is actually so cool that yeah, as you said, there's not this friction between the things that you want to create and someone else doing it for you. You are not relying on anyone else. And another part of it is one of the things that I loved about creating this book is I not only could write the content, but I was, you know, I designed the covers. Like I, I got to make this exactly what I wanted to make it. And maybe some people care less about that, but it was just so cool to just really make something my own. And the same is true with the like, you know, fun little products I've made. It's just, I'm not having to rely on someone taking my vision and implementing it. Then I can just do it myself. I, I love your covers, by the way. I love the design. It looks very good. I hadn't realized you. you'd done it all yourself. Um, just, to, just uh, we, we want to dig into content um, pretty soon and the actual content of your book. But I just have one final question around uh, data, because you said that you are data driven. You like that. Um, many creators in this in this room may not be quite as favorable, feel as favorably towards data. But I'm just wondering, what, what is the basic way you're approaching? looking at the data of your book sales like is there something you're using that helps you assess what you need to do next whether it's changing the price or um, what you're adding on to the book course sure yeah so I mean I will say again this book I've just kind of launched and not done as much with but if I was to like put on my growth marketing hat and say I want to maximize the sales of this. Yeah, I would find out a lot more from my customers about like what they liked, what was missing, and then I, you know, build something out and probably launch an auxiliary product to it. In terms of the pricing, I kind of was just having fun with it and was like, oh, here we go, here's another tier. But I would, if I was trying to be really data-driven about this, I would download the data and look at the conversion rates between each price point and just calculate what the, op you know, you, you learn this in like grade 10 math, right? Like what the, the local and, and global maximum right? Is. And so I would figure that out and I would implement it and keep it at, at that. But for now, like I said, I, I think this is, I mention this all the time on, you know, talks or, or things that I engage in. And I think that one of the biggest takeaways for any creator is if you can separate your financial stability and your creative passions, that sounds counterintuitive because when you grow up, you hear people saying like, if I'm a great singer, I want to be a singer, right? Like I want that to be my job because I spend so much time at my job that like, why not maximize the amount of time I spend singing? But I actually take the counter to that in that in separating your financial stability and your creative freedom, it is the best thing in the world because you are not clouding the two where as you're pursuing something creatively, you're like, oh, how do I make this make more money? Or how do I just like tweak this? And you start to just like make these trade-offs in the things that you're really passionate about such that you can, again, like maximize financially what you're getting out of it. But I've not had to do that because again, I have my job. It pays me well. If this book made $0, then I'd be fine. Right. And that's why I can make exactly what points I want to make in the book. I can publish it exactly how I want. I can set it at whatever price point I want. I can take it down tomorrow and no one cares. I don't care, right? Like, I think that's so empowering and I don't see enough creators doing that where again, if you cloud the two, you'd be surprised at how many trade-offs you need to make throughout your time creating. Um, and instead, if you are able to separate the two, you can just pursue whatever the hell you want and it becomes fun too, right? You, you, you no longer lose the, uh, one final thing I'll say in that, I used to play chess growing up and today I started playing it again. I'm like, this is so fun. And I quit for like a decade. And I was like, why did I ever quit? And then I remember it's because it was too, 
like serious. It, it was too important, right? I was playing competitively. Like there was an outcome that I was trying to pursue that, and there was too much pressure around it, right? So as soon as you remove that pressure, things can become fun again. And that's really what your side projects should be, right? They should be fun, things that you want to engage in and not things that are, are like, they feel like this huge amount of effort to exert in order to produce them. Are you on chess.com? <laughs> I'm, I play on my chess, but happy to play with anyone. I, like I said, I've been so, I, I used to play as a kid, like competitively equipped for a decade. And I've just been like, Oh my God, this is so hmm. fun to play again. Cool. So Steph, there's so much more we can dig into, but uh, I do want to signpost too. Uh, we actually have, I think five copies that we're going to give away of Steph's book. We're going to do that at the end, but just want to signpost. And I think we might also, Steph might be hooking some, some of us up who don't win the book with a code to get a discount too. So just want to signpost because I think there's a lot of interest here. But I do want to say, so we've been talking about all of this, what we've been talking about. This is your side project. Like this is not your day job. So you have your day job, which probably is all encompassing at at, at the hustle and, and working on trends. Um, I'm just curious from a time perspective, like how, how do you, how do you do this? I'm sure you get this question a lot. Like how do you balance all of this, your energy, your time, side projects, day job, what does a, a week look like for you and how do you schedule these things in or do? Well, you? I will say I spend way too much time at the computer. So that is, it's definitely not perfect in terms of like, I choose to pursue these things and other people may choose to prioritize other things like, you know, other things outside or I spend time outside, but you know what I mean? Like everything is a trade-off in life and I have chosen to focus on some of these things at the expense of perhaps other things. I also don't have kids yet. And, you know, like I can do some of these things, I think a little more easily in the current stage of my life. The other thing I'll say before jumping into how I actually manage my time is that as I mentioned, because these are more so passion projects, a lot of people say like, how do you do all this stuff and not burn out? Well, the things like my book and learning to code, like I find those fun, right? So just the same way as someone who would go to their day job and then outside of that go like learn to cook or you know walk their dog and they would enjoy that. I enjoy tinkering with things online. And maybe that's not the case for some other people, but that's one of the ways I've been able to accomplish a lot is because again, everything I do on the side is truly what I enjoy and want to do. Now, in terms of how I actually structure my time, one other tactic I'll call out is, so I've worked remotely for the last several years. And one of the things I'm sure a lot of you have experienced in this last year or so, year and a half, is that work can bleed, right, into everything that you do, because you don't have these triggers of like, oh, I'm leaving work for the day. And you don't have these almost like signposts to signal when you're transitioning between work and life. So it all blends together. One of the things that maybe sounds counterintuitive to people is setting goals in your personal life is so important and not, not the type of goals that are like, you know, I want to like be a better husband. That's great. Be a better husband, but like really tangible things that you can measure and that you can track. And again, some people don't like the sound of that. I remember telling this uh, to someone I just met in I think it was in Singapore one time. And he was like, you sound crazy. Like you sound like one of these like over like kind of compulsive people. But it's funny if you like <laughs> outside of setting these goals, most people would be like, you are the most disorganized, like, you know, chill person. But for this, the reason I say it's important for you to set goals, really, really tangible goals in your life is because if you have goals in your, in one aspect of your life work, which most people do, right? Hitting this KPI or this metric or whatever it is, and you don't have any sort of very, very clear goals in your personal life. Well, anytime, any free time that you have during the week or during the month is naturally going to skew towards your professional goals because it's measurable and your brain just works that way where it's like oh I have this free time like well might as well work towards this thing where maybe I can get a promotion instead of this thing that it just seems amorphous and I'm not even sure how it's benefiting me and so what I've done is really really clearly outlined what are the few things that I really care about in my life and that will keep me accountable so some of them I don't publish all of these um publicly but for example one of them is I say that in theory, I care about keeping in contact with my family, but I can go for long periods of time without calling them. So I literally mark down when I call my family so I can keep myself in check, be like, oh my gosh, you haven't talked to them in a month. Like you say you care about this, like make sure you actually do it. And so I do that for personal projects, but also things, like I said, that I care about how often I floss. There's only like five or so things that I track at a given time because there's only so many things that you can actually invest your time with. But that is a way that I've managed to 
keep myself in check and to, you know, keep progressing in the areas that I want to. And then, like I said, unfortunately, I think I just spend way too much time online um, compared to the average person. So I think that's, I, I think that's my advice if people are kind of wondering how I've been able to accomplish so much in that amount of time is to make sure that you implement very, very clear, tangible, actionable goals in your life. Great. Wonderful tips, Steph. So just a time check. We probably, maybe, uh, so we have so many questions around inside your book, uh, and we're probably going to pick maybe two or three of them, Parl and I, and then we're going to move on to audience questions in the next seven minutes or so. Um, Parl, is there any question that's sticking out to you? Otherwise, I can dig in. Um, yeah, it's hard. I've got so many questions for you. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. I, I think I actually want to go back to this idea of starting a blog because one of the things that you say in your book is that you can still start a successful evergreen blog even today, even when there are so many blogs out there, so many voices. Why, why do you think it's still possible? Yeah, so a framing on this is that for a long time, I didn't think that was true. So I had wanted to write for a while or again, writing is just a tool to communicate certain things. So I wanted to communicate certain things and something that actually stopped me from doing that was this idea where I'm like, oh my God, there are so many blogs online and so many blogs about the topics that I wanna write about. And why should I create one today when there's so much out there already? Like, how am I gonna stand out in that seat? And for a long time, my answer was, well, I won't, so why try? And so when I once I actually started doing it, some of the realizations I've come to now have come through time. They certainly were not obvious early on. I realized, well, actually there is room. Like people are paying attention to my work. I'm not quite sure why, but they are, right? There, there's room. And the thing that I've realized since then is most of the time in life, there's two ways that you can stand out. One of them is that you can find something completely new, right? That's really hard to do, especially with content. Like find me a topic that absolutely no one's writing about today and I will like give you 20 bucks, right? There's just, there's so few things that no one's writing about. So that's typically where we try to look. We try to look for things that are completely new so we can start, you know, that curve of adoption. But what is way more achievable and also way more common in life is finding something that already exists and making it at least 1% better. And this is true not just for writing. So I'll give you a couple non-writing examples where this is true. Movies. Movies today, we have enough movies where every single person on this earth could watch as many movies as they possibly could in their lifetime and be happy right? But for some reason, people still continue to create new movies. And the reason is, is because there's always demand for better movies, right? And the same thing is true with content. There can be a sea of infinite content, 10 times the content today. But if you can find something that already exists, but you can do at least 1% better, again, funnier, more relatable, contrarian, like there's so many different spins into how it can be better, but it has to be better. And the example that seems to resonate with people is I always give the Costco example, which again, isn't a writing based example, but these things are true, not just for writing, but if you're trying to build anything in a sea of something that already exists. And so the Costco example is Costco went into a very, very competitive space, which was general retail. There were so many incumbents in that space. And they said, you know, we're going to focus on doing one thing better. And Costco's one thing was cost. It's in their name. We forget that because it's just like a, a household brand, but cost is in their name. And that's the only thing that they focus on, right? So they went into a, a very competitive space and they said, we're gonna trade off every single thing that someone could care about as a consumer for the one thing that we know at least some cohort of customers really truly care about the most. And that was cost. So if you think about a Costco, if you've ever been to a Costco, it's, yeah. you know, it's a factory basically in terms of like it's, it's um, setting. You never get help in a Costco, huge package sizes, right? So that's not, that's not a positive in terms of general buying retail items. It's um, quite hard to get to, right? Because because they are such large factory style stores. Um, but at the same time, people still love going to Costco because again, for some people, cost is the most important thing. So they've traded off that long line of things that people might care about in in purchasing at a general retail store that some other stores have chosen to take another differentiator where maybe they are more you know, helpful in their stores. Maybe they are more of like a small niche store that only you know, has a certain number of things. But the point is that Costco found a way to differentiate in a crowded space and the same kind of mechanism can be applied to content, right? So you find a space, which is why I mentioned earlier, if you're telling me, you know, I'm going to write a blog about business and tech, I'd be like, cool. I have zero information as to whether you'll be successful, like literally zero. And that's the same thing if 
about any subject, right? It's how you're actually approaching it. How are you differentiating between what exists today and what you're going to create? So the reason I, I went on that rant is because you asked like, do I still think that people can create content today and stand out? The answer is absolutely. And that will absolutely be true 10 years from now. It'll absolutely be true 20 years from now. And it's always been true. And no matter what industry you're in, of course, it's a little easier if you get into something earlier. Like if you truly are at the, the very beginning of something, you don't need to be as good as differentiated. But basically in anything that exists today, you could say the same thing about startups. There's enough startups that exist in the world. Well, new ones still <laughs> crop up because they find new gaps of how to be better in their you know, respective space. Hmm. I love that. And I really like this idea of even just 1% better. What is that one thing that you differentiate yourself on? I, I have kind of, kind of a, a selfish question maybe for us, but also for the writers. Do you, I'm just curious uh, off the wall, is there anything that you think, um, any sort of content or blog around writing that you think there's a gap for? Curious as publishing, writing, anything that you mm. don't think is out there. I know you're part of trends. Maybe you've seen some trends come along. Do you think there's a 1% better that someone, maybe us, maybe someone in this room could do around writing? Well, I mean, I, this sounds like a cop-out, but all of the things that I mentioned before, like any adjective can be appended to any subject, right? And some of them won't match up. And I always give the kind of like obtuse example of, you know, you can make your newsletter more yellow or more pink and like no one cares about that, right? But there absolutely could be a better newsletter around like really, really like an, the honest form around writing effectively. There could be a hilarious one, right? Some people are looking for that. There could be a, just a shorter one, a more concise one than whatever exists out there. And again, these sound really obvious. You're like, really stuff? That's it. But think about the newsletters or the content that you engage in. And the exercise I always I encourage people to do is go through whatever exists in your newsletter, or sorry, your inbox. We'll start with newsletters, but you can do the same thing with, again, podcasts, movies, whatever you're engaging with and go through, let's say your top three, the three newsletters that you always open and then say in one sentence or less, or it could be even 10 sentences, write down what you love about that newsletter. And most of the time I can almost guarantee it's not going to be, I love this newsletter because it writes about tech. It's going to be how it writes about tech. This person is like such a funny host, right? There's going to be something that you love about it and how they do it. And then take that sentence or several sentences and parse it into an adjective. Again, funny, relatable, concise, like easy, stressless, right? And then you can do the same exercise with things that you don't like, or maybe you liked at one point, but you don't anymore. So you write down the thing, whatever the newsletter was, you unsubscribed at one point, why did you unsubscribe? Parse that into an adjective and normally it'll be, it became too political, it became too long, too like, like bad research, right? There's, there's ways to articulate what is bad about it now or what you don't like about it. And I guarantee you, if you go through this exercise, this light bulb will go off in your head where you realize, again, it's not what you're writing about, it's how you're doing it. And th sometimes the simplest differentiators are the most effective where The Hustle has over one and a half million subscribers. If you read The Hustle, they talk about something that so many other newsletters talk about. And if you ask most people who like us, it's very simple. They just think you're pretty funny or you're pretty relatable. That's it. <laughs> they just love that voice, right? And so you don't need to copy that voice, but finding your thing of, like why, why someone would love you. And the thing I'll just tack onto that is the reason this is important is because if you can't articulate like what your differentiator is, how is anyone else going to articulate it to both themselves or other people? If you think about word of mouth, when I tell someone about a newsletter, I'll say, I love James Clear's 321 because it's just so concise. It's like so easy. I no stress when I open this newsletter. Um, there's other ones that maybe have the same amount of knowledge, but I, you know, it takes like 30 minutes to read and I don't want to do that. Right. So it's, it's really important for you to figure out what your differentiator is. And you mentioned like, how could someone apply this to, to writing? You can take any of those examples, any of those adjectives, figure out if that's something that writers care about and apply it to, to the writing craft. I think, uh, I think, uh, I think uh, quite a few light bulbs have gone off in this room as you're speaking. Uh, Matt and I can absolutely relate to that. We were talking about James Clear the other day. You're right, absolutely concise. People like Ramit Sethi, very, very brutal. Tim Ferriss, actionable. So helpful. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, if you can't articulate it to yourself, like I guarantee you know, others can't articulate it about you or share it. Like word of mouth is normally you're sharing why you love something, not what it is. I love that. Thank you. Um, I have, uh, do, I have, do we have time for one more question from us? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, selling yourself. 
because it seems from the outside that you're very comfortable uh, being your own advocate, communicating, communicating honestly and openly. Uh, many of us do struggle with that. And I wondered whether you had any self-talk or a philosophy for putting yourself out there, sharing what you're doing, essentially selling, selling your work. Yeah, so I think there's two aspects that I think have helped me. The first is related to what we've already talked about, which is this idea where if I come to this and no one buys the book, like that's not why I'm here. In fact, like you had invited me and like we ended up talking about the book, but if no one buys it, like that's totally fine. I hope you got something from this engagement or from just hearing my perspective on things. And so I think it's a lot easier to quote unquote promote yourself if you truly aren't trying to, to sell anything. You're just trying to engage with people and share your knowledge. Um, the second part of that, is I think a lot of people are worried about sharing their knowledge because we're all imposters, right? Like I, I get this pretty often, this question where people will be like, do you ever engage in, or do you ever have imposter syndrome? And I'm like, a hundred percent, like anyone who says they don't is lying <laughs> probably. And the, the fact of the matter that has helped me with that idea of like, we're all imposters is one that imposter syndrome, as long as it's checked, is actually a healthy thing because it helps check you to see if you're creating things of value to make sure that you're not just like one of these people who thinks that they're, you know, they love hearing their voice and thinks that they're, they're God and just shares things that aren't helpful to people. So imposter syndrome has a, a positive slant to it where it keeps you in check and makes sure that, you know, am I actually, you know, adding value to the world? Like, am I actually doing things that hopefully will benefit other people? But then the other side of that is that once you realize the whole world is an imposter, it, I think it does free you to be a little more, you know, forthcoming about what you do know, because you're no longer saying, oh, like, I need to be the absolute Olympic athlete in this thing to share it. You're just kind of like, we're all kind of figuring it out. And I'm helping in this like global effort to, to learn things. And may, I may not be perfect, but I learned this early on because the first job I was in, I was doing consulting and I was consulting with these fortune, like fortune 50 companies. And I was, it was in Canada, but consulting with some of their like high C-level execs. And I was like totally, you know, out of my depth in, in some of those conversations, but I realized so were they. <laughs> like we'd be in these, these board meetings and we'd present to them a deck and they were just like, they would look to me and they're like, Steph, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, you're asking me like what you should do with your Fortune 50 company? Like, I, I don't know. And you could say, you could just see how lost they were. And I've had many of those realizations over time, you know, with, in, in other domains with other people who, again, I feel the same way often, but people who you think know what they're doing, don't know what they're doing. And it's not so much a, like a negative thing around those people, but just realizing we're all figuring it out. I think one of the most like empowering things is realizing that your heroes are still figuring things out. And there's, I think my favorite Steve Jobs quote of all time, I can never remember it exactly, but it's basically this, this idea where you realize that every single thing made around you uh, or every single thing in this world around you was made by people just like you. So I think that's just like an incredible realization. And if you really internalize that, I think can be easier to share because you're not, again, trying to be like perfect or the Olympic athlete of whatever you're engaging in. You just realize like, I have something to share. I have a perspective and people can take what they want from it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Amen. So Steph, uh, What's the dream for you? Like, what are you aiming at? Do you have a mountain in the distance that you're marching toward? What's, what's, what's the dream for you? I don't know. Truthfully, I, I think for a long time throughout my career, up until maybe the last year or two, has been, it has been financial freedom. So I grew up in, in not the most wealthy family. And so that was really like my guidepost. Like, how do I get financial freedom um, such that you know, everyone says like, what is the definition of financial freedom? It's when you can wake up every single day and work on whatever you want to work on. So I'm, I'm still not hundred percent there. Like I, I still have a job and have some constraints, but I'm nearing that I'm nearing where I really can just wake up and work on whatever I want to work on, which is so cool. Like that's, that's been my dream for, for so long. So once I get there, it's kind of TBD for a long time, I wanted to start a company. So maybe that will be the case. But as I've kind of, we talked before about like uh, keeping your identity small and it, just having fun with different things. I'm like, maybe that's just my goal to just have fun with whatever the hell, you know, I want to at that particular time. And hopefully, I mean, the one kind of like North star thing that I do want to get back to, as I had mentioned, I did a degree in chemical engineering. So I do actually want to get back to science <laughs> at some point, but that, I don't know when that is. Um, 
and I'm still relatively early in my career. So I'm kind of keeping things open and yeah, I don't know, seeing where they go. Love it. Thank you, Steph, for your honesty, your insights. This has been wonderful. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops, and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm -hmm.